Coronavirus NZ, a daily stuff podcast. So exciting. I know. One more sleep. Yeah, when we wake up in the morning, it'll be level two. Oh, yeah, that too. I mean, it's budget day tomorrow. All those documents, all those spreadsheets. You're a nerd. Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Wednesday the 13th of May. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Each day we bring you the main headlines, take a glimpse at lockdown, life's quirky aspects, and then focus on one particular topic. Another zero day today, huh? Second day in a row, and our fourth of the past few weeks. That's got to be a sign of hope, but let's not get too ahead of ourselves, New Zealand. You've always got to remember that what we're seeing now is like a time warp. It's a reflection of the state that we were in 14 days ago. Yeah, it's normal that people get a bit impatient, isn't it? Remember last week especially, there seemed to be a real push for level two. Why aren't we at level two now? Simon Bridges even came in our show and said as much. So I guess I'm anticipating the calls for level one to start pretty soon. But I'm nervous because of that delay that Adam talked about. I feel in a way that people have already been in level sort of 2.5 since the weekend at least. I was at the supermarket and people were getting fairly sloppy about physical distancing already. There was more than one set of couples doing the shopping run when the rules of level three were quite clear, weren't they? Same as level four, one person per household at the wheel of the trolley. Thank you very much. I almost called the narc on a bubble buster hotline when I was selecting, by eye only I should add, the best calls yet on that display wall thingy at the supermarket, when some dude just barged and reached across me and started fondling all the peppers. Bubble burst, social distance violated, I saw red hot. Chili peppers. Anyway. <sighs> okay, New Zealand, we've done so well so far. This isn't the time to upset Eugene when he's out shopping, nor is it the time to risk an upswing of COVID-19. So let's not screw it up, right? Right. Anyway, later on the show, Dr. Robert Patman, international relations expert from Otago University, unpicks all the name-calling and finger-pointing unfolding between the global superpowers of China and America right now and explains what's behind it and why the post-COVID world could be a boost for the international standing of small countries like New Zealand. But first, what's happened today? In a pre-budget speech, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has got all Shakespearean, warning that New Zealand is about to enter a very tough winter. But every winter, she said, is followed by spring. And if we make the right choices, we can get New Zealanders back to work and our economy moving again quickly. We have to wait until tomorrow to see what choices the government has made, and then we can all start arguing about whether they're actually the right ones. The Chinese city of Wuhan, where the pandemic began, plans to test all 11 million residents after a bounce back of cases at the weekend. The planned testing will apparently be carried out over 10 days. Regular listeners to the show may remember the back of an envelope maths we did last week to see how long it would take to test all 5 million New Zealanders. So 10 days for 11 million Wuhanians sounds, well... Mind-boggling. The UK has passed a grim milestone, recording 40,000 deaths, 10,000 more than the next worst-affected country in Europe, Italy. 25% of the deaths in the UK are care home residents. New Zealand's national airline was founded in 1940, so happy 80th birthday in New Zealand, except Instead of a celebration, 2020 has turned into a catastrophe for the airline with a cotto on its tail. Coronavirus came along and blew out the candles. Stuff business journalist John Anthony reports on the business of aviation, and he's with us now. Hi, John. Hi, guys. So, Air New Zealand's taken a mammoth hit from coronavirus. Can you give us some idea of the numbers so we can understand how big a disaster this has been for the company? Sure. We need to 
point out that it's not just Air New Zealand that's facing a disaster here. This is a, a sector-wide issue that has just crippled the entire aviation industry. And so airlines around the world are grappling with all the same problems that Air New Zealand has. Some won't make it through. Fortunately for Air New Zealand, it is in a position where it has majority government ownership. So that provides it uh, some level of security in terms of its future viability because the government won't want it to fail. Air New Zealand is one of our biggest companies. And before coronavirus, it employed 12,500 staff around the world, most of them in New Zealand. But since coronavirus, it's warned that at least 30% of its workforce which equates to about 3,750 staff, could be laid off within a year. Now, I saw, uh, I saw an interesting tweet from Air New Zealand's Chief Revenue Officer, Cam Wallace, last night. He said that since the start of Level 4, there had been around 13,500 flights cancelled by Air New Zealand. And uh, every month, Air New Zealand, being a stock exchange-listed company, posts its monthly passenger figures to the NZX. And in February, it said passenger numbers had fallen by 50,000 or about 3.5% on February last year. In March, that increased to a 25% drop compared to March last year, which is about a 500,000 passenger decline. And um, April, of course, the month that we were in full lockdown, level four, the figures aren't out on that yet, but that will be the real killer for the airline because essentially no one could travel. Um, in terms of the financial value of the airline, in the 2019 financial year, so last year, it generated a $5.8 billion revenue. And that's expected to fall to less than $500 million. So that's a 90% reduction. Its shares were trading at about $3 a share in January. But after the government announced its $900 million bailout in late March, Air New Zealand's shares plummeted to 87 cents, wiping nearly $2 billion off its market valuation but those shares have since rebounded to trade at, at about $1.20 uh, this week. It's basically shrunk to a, a Cessna when it was a, a jumbo jet of a company, really. How did it cope? What did it do to try and get through this crisis? COVID-19 has meant that it's really had to take an axe to a lot of really key parts of its business and the one that we see the most impact in is, is jobs. It's been a, a bloodbath for jobs right across the company. Currently, the airline's working through a redundancy process for nearly 1,500 cabin crew. That's yet to be completed, so that number's not um, set in stone yet. Um, 300 pilots have been laid off, and another 900 pilots have had to take a pay cut. The chief executive, Greg Foran, has he's taken a 15% pay cut his um, $1.65 million base salary would be reduced by $250,000. The airline's executive team will, will, will extend the freeze on their salaries. That's been in place since May last year. It's suspended most of its international routes and cancelled its Buenos Aires and LA to London services altogether. It stopped flying passenger services on its 777 fleet and it's postponed the commencement of its 
much anticipated non-stop service between Auckland and New York, which was due to launch in October, but has been postponed for at least a year. I guess who wants to go to New York at the moment, huh? Yeah, that'd be a hard sell. One area where it has really focused on since passenger numbers have fallen off a cliff is cargo, because traditionally cargo was kind of seen as the icing on the cake for airline revenue. With so many um, passenger flights flying all the time pre-coronavirus, a lot of the cargo that New Zealand was exporting to the world and imports into New Zealand were in the belly hold of aircraft. But now there's a huge demand for cargo because people wanting to send goods overseas can't find the planes to put it in. So what Air New Zealand's doing is focusing on that cargo by doing cargo charter services. They're, they're looking at con- potentially converting some 777s into more cargo-dedicated aircraft, so stripping out the, the seating potentially or configuring it in a way that is more suited to cargo. And that's something that airlines around the world have been looking to do. And I I saw a a tweet during lockdown where someone had superimposed quite crudely in kind of Comic Sans font the word cargo on the side of a New Zealand plane. Uh, On top of that, there's also been the the Mercy missions, the repatriation flights, and that would have provided some form of revenue stream for the airline. As we move into level two, their options are opening up. What's it going to look like to get the airline back up in the air, as it were? Level two will be where the company really starts warming up the engines again. Level three was was much the same as level four for the airline. It was travel was still very restricted and, and it didn't see much of an uplift at all when we shifted to level three. But for level two, uh, domestic travel is back on the cards and uh, Air New Zealand will be looking to stimulate the market. Well, it's, it's essentially going to focus on being a, a domestic airline because uh, international travel is, is off the cards for the foreseeable future for a lot of people. Under level three, it was flying to seven domestic destinations, but under level two, it's, it's really going to increase the number of places it flies in New Zealand. It's planning to operate around 20% of its usual domestic services, and that will see a return of flying to Queenstown, Invercargill, Blenheim, Rotorua, Gisborne, Palmerston North, New Plymouth, Hamilton, Whangarei, Kirikiri, and and that's on top of the existing services that it's been offered to need in Christchurch, Nelson, Wellington, Napier, Tauranga, and Auckland. There's still there's some that have been left off, but but in in time those those should all return. I should say as part of the government's nine hundred million dollar bailout, one of the conditions is that it must maintain its existing domestic network as it was before coronavirus. So that's to ensure that connectivity to the regions. How have passengers fared in all of this? How well has Air New Zealand looked after its customers? So far, um, more than 200,000 passengers have had their flight in credit as a result of coronavirus-related cancellations. And some have been expressing concerns that they may not be able to use credit from cancelled flights on other flights that are not like for like, or they're worried that they might not be able to use an international flight credit on a domestic airfare. And these sorts of issues have come up. And in general, the airline has been offering credit for customers for a future flight. 
Um, now there's certain caveats. So if you purchased a non-refundable ticket, it remains non-refundable unless local legislation requires a refund. Um, but in terms of the credit, customers have until June 30 next year to use that credit. And then they have 12 months to complete their travel from the time they make that booking. In New Zealand says the credit is not restricted to the same route or type of journey that was originally booked. But another area around credits which has concerned customers is the recent cancellation of domestic flights that Air New Zealand undertook in the lead up to the announcement around level two. So they cancelled a bunch of domestic flights that passengers had booked and offered them credit for those flights. The, the passengers are saying, well, we wanted to fly on those dates on that particular flight. We, we, didn't, we don't want credit. Um, so that, again, has caused some controversy. I guess to use uh, an airline analogy, there's a bit of turbulence still, but hopefully they'll get back up off the runway and flying again soon. John Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure. In the scramble to draw up rules and policies around coping with COVID-19, there were always going to be unintended consequences when there missteps and controversies. I'm not sure what category to put the uproar over tangihanga and funerals in. In case you've missed it, the guts is that even under Level 2, there will be severe restrictions around how many people can attend tangi and funerals. As late as last week, there were indications the limit would be 100, but on Monday it emerges, no, it's 10. This sparked a backlash from Māori communities and leaders, many of whom pointed out, hey, how come you can have a maximum of 100 people gathered in a restaurant, say, albeit in groups of 10, but you can only have 10 max at a tangi? Kylie Quince, who's a law lecturer in Auckland, has suffered the deaths of three uncles during lockdown. Three uncles. The last was this week, and the whānau was hoping that with the move to level two, they'd at least be able to give him a proper tangi, but no. She says, yeah, we're disappointed. We'd hope that the government would trust us to gather together safely. Within Māoridom, tangihanga are an especially important ritual, a real gathering of the community. There are formal rituals which vary from iwi to iwi, but they're an important and solemn occasion, and they're an occasion of scale. It's not just tangi, of course. There's a story and stuff about a Cambridge widower who's pleading for the cap on funerals to be lifted, saying, how come people can start engaging in contact sports like rugby? But, you know, you can see where he's coming from. A grieving man who wants to bury his wife with as many of his family and friends beside him. In some ways, it's a bit like those people who took legal action to break their quarantine so they could visit dying relatives. There are some things that you just can't delay. And sure, some people have arranged a cremation for their dead relative and a delaying the actual ceremony for later. But most people, Māori, non-Māori, want to grieve properly and they want to grieve at the right time. Yeah, I mean, look, you've got to feel sorry for everyone, don't you? Nobody, not least the Prime Minister, wants to stand there and trample over anyone's grief. Jacinda Ardern has called the issue one of the toughest parts of this policymaking, which uh, it it sounds horrible and heartless even putting it like that, talking about policymaking, but there has been some yielding. Yesterday the Prime Minister said, look, how about people view the body at a tangi at separate times while the body is lying in state on the marae? And then this afternoon, more changes have been announced. The limit's been eased to 50 people at a funeral or tangi, so long as there are strict measures in place, including no gathering for food or drink afterwards. Coronavirus has always involved a tricky balancing act, hasn't it? Public health and the economy. And then this brings into focus that it's also about public health and human emotion and humanity. It doesn't really get much tougher than that, does it? 
Hey, what's in the email inbox, Adam? Viruspod at stuff.co.nz. An interesting email here from Stefan Cavill Fowler. Like all the best emails, it starts with a compliment. I love the podcast and listen late at night or on a walk or a run. So cheers for that, Stefan. Stefan says he used to work in public health and he was interested in yesterday's episode where Thomas Coughlin talked about the legal basis for the lockdown and the emergency powers in the Health Act. Stefan points out that although those sweeping powers did come from the 1956 Health Act, they're actually a pretty direct cut and paste from the Health Act 1920, which was of course written soon after the 1918 flu epidemic. So these are rules that are designed for a pandemic. Stefan says the legislation was written to give support to the medical officer of health, that's what they were called, in their districts, uh, so they could close areas of mass gatherings and businesses. I think it's a bit technical because Ashley Bloomfield's job, the Director General of Health, didn't exist in 1956, so the rules were tweaked quite recently to empower the Director General of Health rather than the medical officer of health. So, got all that? Anyway, Stefan also says this. I'd like to give a shout out to the members of the public health units, the doctors, nurses and health protection officers, where I worked, that are very under-resourced to manage the business as usual, let alone something of this scale. Here, here, Stefan, I second that. I have another important email to discuss, though. Uh, it's to my personal address, and it reads, You'll be pleased to know that your order has been processed and packed for delivery. We are just waiting for the courier to pick it up, and then it will be on its way to you. Oh, exciting. What could it be? Online craft beer? I reckon Steve Gilgallon would have sent you a recommendation by now. Black market shawl-baked yeast? Champagne to celebrate level two? What is it? None of those. Something much more exciting. It's a new bread maker pan. You know, the tin that you actually bake in inside it. We've been baking so much in lockdown that the sprockety turny thing wore out and the dough has sort of been leaking out the bottom and the the rubbery washer was sort of leaking into the dough and it was all getting a little bit unseemly but any day now our 12 year old george foreman bread maker is going to be just like new woohoo plague playlist what do you got today something that came through the facebook so it's always hard to figure out the precise origins of things that appear on your facebook feed which is why you should pretty much never believe anything that you read on there uh, but i'm pretty sure this wasn't created by a russian bot farm after a little googling around the names on it, I think I've established that it was first posted by a chap called Cyril Ryan, who's from Galway, Ireland, and the caption says, My Brother Dermot. So, let's go out on a limb here and say that the singer is probably called Dermot Ryan. And the song itself, it's a reworking of the old classic Lanigan's Ball, and it goes a bit like this. In the town of Wuhan, some from an animal made a big lep and infected a few. Nobody thought it would be a pandemic, and now the whole world's in a hullabaloo. It didn't take long for the germs to go global in planes and trains and cruises by sea. Now locked in our homes and trying to stay sober, we can't even watch the live sports on TV. And it goes on to wrap in social distancing and Trump and Boris Johnson and... Toilet paper. Six long months without toilet roll. I wish to God I had constipation because I have nothing for wiping me whole. Nice. Bad joke time, Adam. Got a good one for you today from the Lorenzen Isolation Joke Station. You're a bit of a gym bunny, aren't you, Adam? Some say. What kind of exercises do lazy people do? I don't know. What kind of exercises do lazy people do? Diddly squats.
The coronavirus is so tiny, it's invisible. Yet as it rockets around the world, it's testing human systems at every possible level. There's the individual fighting off infection, the communities and nations going to lockdowns, and then, at an even higher level, the relationships between countries. COVID-19 has sort of revealed some of the weaknesses in our international systems, and as the months go by, it's also reshaping them. Uh, Dr. Robert Patman is a professor at the University of Otago and an expert in international relations and global politics, and he joins us now. Hi, Robert. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, Eugene. Firstly, under President Trump, America has moved away to some extent from an international cooperation and towards nationalism. Meanwhile, China has spent the past decade or so working to expand its influence and prestige all around the world. And then COVID came along. So in very broad terms, what has the arrival of COVID-19 revealed about the state of global politics? I, I think it's revealed um, the absence of a functioning global public health infrastructure. And more importantly, it's revealed the lack of an effective international crisis management system with the UN Security Council failing to offer much leadership and uh, international organizations like the WTO and IMF relegated to virtual bystanders. And you're right, uh, the rivalry that we saw looming between the United States and China before the COVID-19 crisis been a feature of the Trump administration. Mr. Trump set himself the goal of, as he put it, redressing some issues in relations with China, which led to tariffs imposed on China and China retaliated with its own tariffs. Uh, Unfortunately, the COVID-19 crisis has not really brought the two leaderships together. There were signs that might happen early on, but uh, it certainly has not happened uh, since February of this year. Unfortunately, Both China and the United States do not come out of the COVID-19 crisis very well. China was pretty slow to inform the world about how serious this was. The first cases of COVID-19 were detected in Wuhan in mid-November. It was late December, early January before China informed the WHO. Once it made that step, it was very, I think, comprehensive in the information it gave to the WHO, the World Health Organization. From the American standpoint, the Trump administration did not take much notice of the advice given by the WHO. It should be recalled on the 30th of January, the WHO declared the outbreak of COVID-19 as a public health emergency of international concern. And by March, it was declaring it a global pandemic. Mr. Trump didn't really take the situation seriously to about 17th of March. And he missed two vital months, maybe three, to ramp up PPE, personal protection equipment, to get a testing system in in action. And of course, now America has uh, the highest numbers, unfortunately, of deaths from COVID-19 in the world, going above 80,000. America had plenty of warning that this crisis was coming on. So I think to sum up, both China and the United States do not come out of this particularly well. And to add insult to injury, they both blamed each other for a crisis which neither can control, which seems rather odd, really. This is a global Mm. pandemic which doesn't recognize borders, but they're both blaming each other uh, as being responsible. I was interested in some of the detail of that particular argument. So you've got both US and China specifically 
blaming each other for the very start of the virus outbreak. So what's the actual evidence around those counterclaims and what are the two parties trying to achieve by having these arguments? I don't think uh, there's much evidence around the counterclaims. Uh, China um, made some suggestions the CIA were in some way responsible for manufacturing the virus or leaking it in China. There's no evidence to suggest that. Um, America doesn't have the sort of presence around Wuhan that would suggest they could do such a thing. Uh, There have been scientific visits by American scientists to the Wuhan virus complex, the, the laboratory there. And the American allegation is that this virus was leaked deliberately from the uh, laboratory in Wuhan, and therefore the Chinese deliberately brought this about. There's no scientific real evidence to suggest there's much substance to either of these allegations. So why are they making allegations which lack hard evidence? Well, they're both in the business of deflection. An authoritarian regime was slow in China to volunteer information that it had an embarrassing problem on its hands. Here we have a parallel in some ways, with uh, the Soviet Union's response to the nuclear reactor accident in Chernobyl when the Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union in April 1986. They were very slow then, and it was only after radioactive clouds floated over uh, Scandinavia that they finally conceded there had been a nuclear reactor accident. I think the Chinese authorities found it a little bit political embarrassing. This problem had developed, this major health problem and uh, were slow to acknowledge it. Uh, Once they did, I think they acted in good faith. They apparently passed over the entire genetic sequence to the WHO around about the 12th of January. Uh, Why is Mr. Trump doing this? Well, I think he's feeling very defensive. He didn't take the problem very seriously. He seems to have had problems grappling with this. Even, you know, he was making speeches even is early April, saying that uh, America was an exceptional country and that no virus would defeat the American people and things like this. But unfortunately, he's dealing with a cold reality which doesn't respond to rhetoric or spin or messaging. So I think that in their different ways, both the Chinese and the Americans have made these accusations to deflect from issues which they'd rather not have too much public attention on. One other target of Trump is the World Health Organization, of course. Uh, why is he so worked up about them? Is Again, is there an actual problem or a, another example of deflection and blame shifting? Well, that's very ironic, isn't it? Because Mr. Trump is blaming the organization which offered the administration the ventilators early on in the piece. I think it was in ja- mid- early January. The administration turned them down because... They were not the sort they wanted. They were not American-made. And the WHO um, continued to warn about the crisis from about mid-January onwards. And Mr. Trump has now blamed them um, for the situation that's developed in the United States. Now, that's, again, a bit of a... a, I think Mr. Trump... um, He's a bit of a scapegoat specialist. It's always the other guy's fault. And I think we have to see his criticism of the WHO in that, in that context. Uh, you know, in, in a sense, 
you know, it, it's, it's a way of deflecting criticism from his own administration's incompetence and in a, you know, inability to anticipate this problem. Government is not just about reacting. Good sound policymaking is not just about reacting to problems. It's also anticipating them. And America got fair warning under his leadership that this problem was on its way. Can we perhaps turn to how COVID is affecting the world order? We've got a situation where Australia is trying to get an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19 going, and and China's pretty grumpy about that. Mm. Is this an example of how COVID is perhaps reshaping the global order? Well, it could be. And I think, you know, it's very interesting you say this because I think there's a fair amount of agreement amongst many diplomats and scholars that the world will be quite different after the COVID-19 global pandemic. But they disagree on exactly what the nature of that change will be. It's fair to say that uh, some observers believe the world will become more protectionist, more inward-looking, that nation-states will become quite isolationist, try to sort of minimize their international contacts. But another interpretation is that actually the, there's no reversing globalization. You can no more deglobalize than you can deindustrialize. The digital and communications technology we take for granted will continue to develop and uh, the world will continue to become ever more interconnected. And I think the latter interpretation is more realistic. I think if that is true, what COVID-19 may have done is sensitized all of us to how fragile we all are and how interdependent. And the fact is, it also highlights something else, which has been a trend in global politics for some time, that superpowers can't sort out the world's problems for us. If you look at unilateral action by the United States and China and Russia, it's got a very poor track record in the post-Cold War period. And in addition, this COVID-19 issue could sensitize us to the other looming global problem, which of course is climate change. And it may bring people into a frame of mind where they reassess the whole problem of climate change and may also, I think, accelerate the need for a shift in the energy paradigm. I found it very interesting that a couple of weeks ago, two former US Secretaries of State, James Baker and George Shorts, said that whoever wins the race for developing clean energy in the 21st century will play a decisive role in shaping that century. There are a lot of parts at play, aren't there? And New Zealand, a small country, but some big decisions to make. What are the factors that New Zealand will be taking into consideration about some of those decisions about where to stand? New Zealand, you know, we're not out of this crisis by any means, but we've performed relatively well by international standards. And we have always had, as a country, a deep interest in what observers call an international rules-based system. We're not big enough or powerful enough to dictate the shape of our external environment, and therefore we need rules. Rules are therefore the middle-range powers and the smaller powers like ourselves. And I think one thing that does come out of this crisis for New Zealand is an enhanced international reputation. 
It was enhanced also after the Christchurch terror atrocity. I think this has only added to New Zealand's standing internationally. And I think it might give us, along with other like-minded countries, such as in the EU and Scandinavia and also Canada and Australia, it might give it the, the middle range powers and the smaller states a chance to push their agenda forward in a way which they probably couldn't have anticipated a decade ago. So, yes, I think for New Zealand, COVID-19 is a disruptive event, but it will redefine what will be a prolonged international transition. And I don't think there's any return to the pre-globalization era. And I think COVID-19 has helped make New Zealand, to use a phrase, a minor power rather than a small state. And uh, in an interconnected world, small powers have much more leverage, much more influence than and they did in the past. It's interesting to me how many international observers have favorably compared the performance of our government with their own. And uh, we've got some big decisions. We will suffer a lot of economic pain. But I think actually one issue that's beginning to develop, an interesting one, is we've got this talk about a trans-Tasman bubble. And if that works well, two relatively high performers during the COVID-19 crisis, which happen to be neighbours, if they can form an arrangement where the two citizens of the two countries can safely travel between each other's country, that could be extended to other countries which have also acquitted themselves well in this crisis. For example, there are a number of countries that both Australia and New Zealand trade with, important dynamic countries such as South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, who've all done very well in managing this very difficult global pandemic. And we could envisage New Zealand playing a part in helping to restart the international trade system by a trans-Tasman bubble that's extended to a sort of Asia-Pacific bubble. It's very difficult, obviously, to predict the future, but it, it seems to me that New Zealand, which, which is a small but global trader, has a big interest in getting the, you know, the wheels of trade turning as soon as possible. It's certainly very interesting times. Thank you so much, Dr. Robert Patman, for giving us that overview. Much appreciated. Thank you. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Wednesday the 13th of May. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Robert Patman, John Anthony, Alex Yu, Catherine George, Patrick Crudson and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms and if you want to get in touch with us, you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism by making a financial contribution, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. One more sleep till level two. Swado me. Swado me.